Well, listen, um, you guys who uh, come to church here know that uh, we have intended to get to this topic for a while, but we had a few things on the schedule already uh, that prevented us from uh, addressing it when these events first happened. Um, But a couple of weeks ago, the Supreme Court of the United States, in a 5-4 decision, uh, made same-sex marriage legal in all 50 states. By the way, I'll just mention I feel really loud. I'll trust you, but I just wanted to mention that. Uh, In doing so, they rejected the only definition of marriage that has existed throughout all of human history until about the last three minutes, historically speaking. They changed the legal definition of marriage to include couples of the same gender, and they declared state-sanctioned marriage a fundamental human right. The four dissenting justices were very forceful in their denunciation of the ruling. Uh, Supreme Court Justice Roberts went so far as to say that the ruling had absolutely nothing to do with the Constitution. My purpose today is not to critique the ruling on legal grounds, though I don't think that any of us need to be constitutional scholars to agree uh, with the dissenting justices. And my purpose today is simply to address how I believe that we as a church, both individual Christians and all of us together corporately, ought to respond to this decision. But before we get into any of that, I want to speak today, uh, here at the outset, to uh, anyone that's here this morning that might be same-sex attracted. I want you to know that Vineyard Pataskala makes four very specific commitments to you. The first commitment that we make to you is that we love you. The media will tell you that we do not, but we actually do. Now, we have to be honest and say that uh, if you have a conception of love that means, uh, that, that views it as if someone loves me, they must always agree with me, then we might have a difficult time convincing you Uh, that we love you, but if you can accept that people can love each other, though they may not always agree, uh, then I think that you'll see if you hang around with us for a while that we really do love you. And and I hope that agreeing isn't the standard for loving, uh, or else Michelle and I are really doing something wrong. And so I, I think that most of us can understand that love is not dependent upon always agreeing, and I hope that you will be able to, uh, to accept that. Our second commitment to you is that we welcome you here, and we desire friendship with you. We want you to attend church here. We want you to feel welcomed here. Our doors at Vineyard Christian Church are not closed to anyone Jesus wants a relationship with everyone, and we want to extend the welcome of God to everyone who walks through our doors. There are no exceptions to that. Our third commitment to you is that we are a church that is committed to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what that means is that we do not condemn you But we do believe that apart from faith in Christ, all of us are condemned. We believe that through Christ's sinless life, sacrificial death, and resurrection, we can be forgiven of our sins, we can be reconciled to God, and we can receive eternal life. 
And we believe that those benefits are available to every single person through faith in Christ, which includes repentance, turning away from sin and turning toward God. And that leads up, uh, leads me, excuse me, to our fourth commitment. We are here to support one another in living in obedience to God. We believe that the Bible does not just include, uh, teaches the gospel, I'm sorry, doesn't just include forgiveness of sins, but also includes freedom from sin. That once we turn to Christ in faith, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our lives and empowers us to live lives in obedience to God. And we will say very clearly that none of us here live in perfect obedience to God. And that is not a standard that we hold anyone to. But we are committed to helping each other live in increasing obedience to God. These are our commitments to uh, folks who are same-sex attracted. What we cannot do, however, is deny what we believe is clear in Scripture. We want to be honest with you and say that we do believe homosexuality is sin. We do not believe same-sex attraction is sin, just as we don't believe being attracted to sinful heterosexual practices is sin. But we do believe that engaging in any form of sex the Bible condemns is sin. We realize that there are many voices that are saying that the Bible does not condemn homosexual behavior, but we find these voices and their arguments to be completely unpersuasive. So before we get into the real focus of the message today, I want to share with all of us a few resources that you might find helpful. I would encourage you to take advantage of these resources if you're here today and you are same-sex attracted. Uh, If you are here and you're either straight or gay, but you are questioning what the Bible says about homosexuality, or even if you're quite convinced what the Bible says, but you desire to learn more and be equipped to speak on the topic better, uh, I would encourage you to take advantage of these resources. Of course, there are many good resources available, uh, but there are three that I want to commend to you today. Uh, the first one is uh, this little book. Uh, it's uh, simply titled, Is God Anti-Gay? And it is written by a man named Sam Alberry, who is a Christian pastor who is same-sex attracted, but because of his belief about Scripture, he has chosen to live a celibate life uh, in obedience uh, to God. I think you will find this book to be very uh, helpful. The second book that I would commend to you is by Kevin DeYoung, who happens to be my very favorite Christian author. Uh, It is, What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? I think you'll find this book to be very helpful. And then if you go to the Gospel Coalition website, it's gospelcoalition.org. And if you don't remember any of these, you can email me this week and I'll send you the list. But at gospelcoalition.org, I would encourage you to find the link that's titled 50 Resources for Equipping the Church on Homosexuality and Same-Sex Marriage. And it's just what it sounds like. There are 50 different articles written uh, on different aspects of this issue that I think you'll find very uh, helpful. So we're going to be talking more about this topic during our fall series on sex. Uh, Some of what isn't said today will be said then. 
And I appeal to you today to don't expect me to say everything good that could be said today. That's a standard that can't ever be met. And I am simply speaking on the things that I felt impressed to prioritize uh, today. I believe there are at least four appropriate responses to the Supreme Court's decision. And right now, I don't mean responses in terms of things that we must do. That uh, will be the next point that we get to. But I mean responses in the sense of how we feel and how we think about this decision. Uh, Some of these will probably validate how you felt, and some might even challenge a bit how you have felt. The first appropriate response to the Supreme Court's decision, I believe, is sadness. And I have heard many of you express sadness over the last couple of weeks. Uh, Someone came up to me this morning before the service and shared how they were glad that I was talking about this topic and that they have just been feeling, uh, I forget the exact word they used, but the the gist of it was just almost a a strong discouragement uh, over the past few weeks. John Piper, in his usual eloquent way, wrote an excellent article at DesiringGod.org where he lamented the Supreme Court's decision and shared how appropriate it is for Christians to be profoundly sad about the decision. That's another thing I didn't, another article I'd encourage you to read. There are many reasons for sadness over this decision. In fact, if you have not experienced some level of sadness, I personally would be a bit concerned for you that you may not be responding appropriately to what has happened. The decision is a cause for sadness because it represents the triumph of feelings over objective facts. There has only been one definition of, of marriage in all of human history, man and woman. This has been universally understood across centuries by both religious and secular people. There is not a more objectively true fact than that, the, than that marriage is the uniting of a man and a woman. But this objective fact has now been rejected, and it has been rejected based on nothing more than feelings. If you read Justice Kennedy's majority opinion, it is replete with a lot of feelings, not a, not a lot of constitutional analysis. It's a cause for sadness because human flourishing and the good of society has now been subordinated to sex. In other words, the reason governments have always privileged man-woman relationships with state-recognized marriage is because there was agreement that encouraging and preferring the relationship of a man and a woman who in most cases would become a mother and father was what was in the best interest of kids that would result from that relationship and ultimately what would best produce human flourishing and be in the interest of a well-functioning society. Stable families resulting in a stable society. Man-woman marriage laws were meant to help keep children together with their biological mother and father, which everyone has, by the way. And while gay marriage isn't the first thing to do damage to these objectives, it is yet another thing that does violence to keeping kids with their mother and father. And friends, here is the truth. Kids do best when they are with their mother and their father. 
That's no disrespect to single-parent homes. That's no disrespect to blended uh, families. Uh, And obviously, there are exceptions to any rule, and there are circumstances where these things just aren't possible. And when they aren't, we believe that God is gracious and provides what is needed. But in broad terms, it is inarguable that kids do best when they have an intact family, when they are with their biological mother and father. Gay marriage is yet another thing that says none of this is important, that kids don't need both mom and dad. And as such, it does harm to real people, it does harm to vulnerable people, it does harm to children. The decision causes sadness because it continues the institutionalization of sin. It is not the first Supreme Court decision to do so, or even the worst. Roe versus Wade institutionalized sin in a way that ought to be unthinkable to a civilized people. So so it isn't like this is the first time this has happened, but it is yet another egregious institutionalization of sin. Unless we think this is a small matter, let me remind us that it is not. Proverbs 14.34 tells us, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin condemns any people. Here's how the New Living Translation says it. Godliness makes a nation great, but sin is a disgrace to any people. You say, well, Brian, you know, we're in a pluralistic society, and so I don't think it's that big a deal for a secular society to codify into law things that are displeasing to God. And this is a a statement that I hear from Christians quite frequently, and you're free to think that, but you're also free to be wrong. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin condemns any people any people. If you care about the well-being of your nation, whether everyone in that nation trusts in Christ or not, the society is benefited when laws are righteous and it is harmed when laws are unrighteous. When unrighteousness is codified, when it's institutionalized, it is a horrible thing for everyone, including those who don't realize that it's a horrible thing. Here's another passage that emphasizes why sadness is an appropriate response. Isaiah 5.20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. The verse starts with woe, which in the Old Testament indicated something that invited God's judgment. And this is what our nation has done. We have called evil good. At least with abortion, most people still at least feign some discomfort with the idea. You know, there are certainly abortion advocates who, who uh, outright celebrate it. But most of the general population still tries to at least act uncomfortable with it. Uh, shrinks back from calling it a good. Not so with gay marriage. The country as a whole seems to be unrestrained in its approval. Loudly, celebratory, uh, calling it uh, a good thing. 
our nation's White House, which is occupied by a president who just a few years ago claimed a sincerely held religious objection to gay marriage, was lit up with the colors of the rainbow flag and open celebration of sin, it was one of the most disrespectful acts that could have ever been taken against the millions of Christians that our president knows disapprove of this decision. And if that makes you uncomfortable, I'm sorry, but I would say that no matter who was in the White House. The decision is cause for sadness because it has set the stage for the marginalization of Bible-believing Christians. And it has set the stage for what could very possibly, I believe, likely develop into actual persecution. And it's my contention that if you don't think so, you're simply not paying attention. And many voices are stating that this is just the beginning, that the next goal is the complete eradication of what is imprecisely called homophobia. And let me tell you, all it takes to be considered homophobic is to affirm what the Bible clearly says on the topic. That's all it takes. You can be the nicest person in the world. And if you simply say, but I believe that this is wrong, you're going to be homophobic. And the next goal is complete eradication of homophobia. Sadness is an appropriate response, and anger is an appropriate response. I saw a Christian friend on Facebook post the week after the ruling, if your church's response to the Supreme Court decision includes anger, they're doing it wrong. And I resisted the temptation to weigh in, uh, which I felt very good about myself for, especially if any of you watch me on Facebook, you know it was a moment of profound strength. Uh, And in a sense, I understand this. I mean, if we're talking about getting red-faced and stomping our feet and waving our fist in the air, then I would absolutely agree. But it generally just is not a a right statement. It's, It's widely accepted. It's a widely accepted sentiment, but it's wrong. Because there is such a thing as righteous anger. And if there has ever been a time when righteous anger was called for, now is that time. You see, even though people try to deny this, we know from Scripture that Jesus got angry. He was angry when he drove the money changers from the temple. He got angry with people who didn't want him healing on the Sabbath. Mark 3, 5 says he looked around at the people uh, that didn't want him healing in anger. He looked at them in anger, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, went ahead and healed in defiance of their preference. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul expressed great displeasure. There is little doubt that he was angry with the church for tolerating the man who was sinning with his father's wife. Anger is appropriate when it is righteous anger. And I can't think of a much better justification for righteous anger than the institutionalization of sin, the triumph of feelings over fact, the subordination of human flourishing and the best interests of children to sex, and the potential loss of religious freedom in a country founded at least in part by the desire for religious freedom and that has religious freedom written into its constitution. Anger is an appropriate response, but don't sin in your anger. It's one of the words that I believe the Lord has for us today. 
Righteous anger is an appropriate response, but don't sin in your anger. That's what Ephesians 4.26 tells us. Be angry, but don't sin. And verse 27 encourages us to not let the devil get a foothold when we're angry. You see, there's such a thing as righteous anger, but it takes great care to prevent the devil from corrupting it into something that is ungodly. Anger is appropriate, so allow anger to fuel some good decisions. Allow anger to influence how you vote. But don't get in a fistfight with someone who disagrees with you. You get the idea. Be angry, but don't sin. Sadness is appropriate. Anger is appropriate. And it's appropriate that we do some evaluation as to why we're in this situation. And here's the main thing that I want to say for the sake of time. It's really the only thing I'll say on this point. The church bears much of the blame. I might go so far as to say most of the blame. I might even go further and say almost all of the blame for the current state of affairs. Too many churches have been effectively silenced by people telling them that simply preaching what the Bible says makes them haters. And so in their attempt to prove that they aren't haters, they stopped preaching the Bible. They, they started tolerating sinful nonsense in an effort to be viewed favorably by the world. They started pretending that there was reason for legitimate debate over what the Bible says about homosexuality. They started desiring the approval of men more than the approval of God. And so here we are. Here we are. You know, I'm unhappy with the Supreme Court. I'm, I'm frankly fairly unhappy with our president. I'm unhappy with a whole list of spineless politicians that I could tell you about today. But hear me well, more than any of those people, more than any of those people or institutions, the institution that I am most unhappy about is the church, the state of the church. Spineless pastors and spineless Christians, because here's what I believe. It requires a weak and faithless church for this kind of change to take place in a nation that has the Judeo-Christian heritage that this nation has. And don't put words in my mouth. I didn't say this was a Christian nation. It's never been an officially Christian nation, but it has had a Judeo-Christian foundation, Judeo-Christian underpinnings. And to lose all of that in this nation, the responsibility rests more than any place else on a weak and faithless church. The final response that I want to mention today, the most appropriate response of all it is out of step with the rest of these responses. It is the response of faith, of faith. It's not out of step. It, it just kind of doesn't seem to fit with all this sadness, but this is, this is an appropriate response. Sadness and anger and evaluation are appropriate things. But what I want to encourage us to remember today is that God is not surprised by any of these developments God is not perplexed by anything that has happened. God knew before he spoke the world into existence that we would be in this situation in the United States of America. And in spite of all that is going wrong, God remains sovereign. God is in control. 
And in the end, God wins. That's just the way that it is. Now, let me share a few things that I think we must now do. We've talked about responses in terms of how we feel and think about the decision, but let's now talk about some things that we should do in response to the decision. The first thing we have to do in response to the legalization of same-sex marriage is to faithfully, uh, consistently demonstrate the love of God to those who are same-sex attracted, to those who disagree with us, even to those who are hostile toward us and mistreat us. We can be angry, but we must not sin. We must not allow our, our, our understandable sadness. We must not allow our legitimate righteous anger to be corrupted into something that is unrighteous. We must love like Jesus, who died for us when we were at our worst, when we had positioned ourselves as his enemies. And here's the truth, friends. If we don't love the people that Jesus loves which is everybody. If we don't love the people Jesus loves, then all of our right beliefs, all of our righteous anger make us, in the words of 1 Corinthians 13, nothing more than resounding gongs and clanging cymbals. You see, God loves everybody. Nobody is so hostile to God that he stops loving them. And if we're going to please God, our love toward gay people must be genuine. It cannot be feigned. It cannot be something that we just give lip service to because we know as Christians we ought to. It must be real. And so I would ask you today to examine yourself. Can you honestly say that you love everyone God loves? If the answer to that is no, then friend, I'm convinced that God is as concerned about the condition of your heart as he is the condition of the person living in homosexual sin. And I think, and it's not because I know anything specifically, it's just in any group of people, I think there are probably a few people here today who do have attitudes toward gay people that are displeasing to God. And if that is true for you, I'd encourage you that you need to do business with God. You need to have your heart changed so that you love everybody that God loves. And then I think the vast majority of us here today can honestly say that we do love gay people. And if that's true for you, here's the encouragement I have for you. You are not a hater just because someone says you're a hater. You're not. You're not a homophobe just because someone labels you that way. If you know you really do love like Jesus wants you to love, don't be bullied into thinking you're a hater because you believe what the Bible says. Believing the Bible does not make you a hater. It does not make you a homophobe. So don't buy that lie. The second thing we must do in response to the Supreme Court decision, and I've squeezed two things into one point here, is uh, they go hand in hand. We must pray and we must speak the truth. These two things go hand in hand. Speaking the truth needs to be preceded by prayer. Before we speak on this topic publicly or privately, uh, to a small group or to an individual, we need to pray. We need God to guide our speaking. And so please, I have an appeal for all of us today. Don't speak 
until you've prayed. But once you have prayed, don't shrink back from speaking the truth. In fact, I believe that Christians have a responsibility to not be silenced on this topic because that is one of the tactics of the enemy is to shut up truth, to silence truth. And I'm convinced that one of the reasons we're even where we are today in our culture is that for too long, Christians have allowed themselves to be silenced by the pressure to be politically correct, to never say anything anyone disagrees with, to never talk about anything that might offend someone. So don't be silenced. Say what you believe, kindly, respectfully, tactfully, but say it. When your family member begins railing against those homophobic Christians, speak up. Say, hold on just a minute. You're, you're railing against like, like me, but I'm not homophobic, so let's talk about this. Why, why, why are you making this charge and challenge them on it? Speak up. When your gay friend says that it's a myth, that the Bible condemns homosexual practice, you need to be prepared to answer. And then you need to have the courage to answer lovingly, gently, but truthfully. We must be willing to speak the truth, but we must take great care to speak the truth well. Be thoughtful, be kind. Don't call for people to repent on Facebook. Now, I'm not saying don't share the gospel on Facebook, which would include, you know, talking about repentance. But don't call for an individual that you're in dialogue with to repent in that kind of public uh, format. And I say that as a person who engages in debate on Facebook, passionate, even heated debate. But don't call for people to repent. And when dialogue turns too negative, invite the person to coffee and politely opt out of the conversation. But I will say this. I think it's okay to speak the truth anywhere there's a conversation going on, as long as you do so respectfully. Whoever made the rule that Facebook can only be about posting pictures of cats and food did not inform the rest of my Facebook friends. And so as long as they're going to put serious topics in my news feed... I'm going to join the conversation. I mean, isn't that what the culture invites us to do all the time? Join the conversation. I'll hold it. Never mind. Not you. <laughs> Don't you join the conversation. There's so much more that could be said here, but pray, speak the truth, speak the truth well. And here's the third thing we need to do in response to the Supreme Court decision. As our culture is celebrating sin, we need to be faithful to share the gospel. All of us, not just gay people, all of us have been separated from God by our sin, and the wages of our sin for everyone is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Through the sinless life, substitutionary death, and resurrection of Christ, we can receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And we respond to this good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ through repentance and faith in Jesus. We recognize that we are sinners. We turn away from that sin and toward God, we receive Christ and the forgiveness and eternal life that he has secured for us. And then the gospel goes on. 
We then submit ourselves to Christ because we know he is both Savior and Lord, and he gives us his Holy Spirit to then empower us to live in obedience to him. Briefly stated, that's the gospel. And within our culture that is celebrating sin, we need to be faithful to share the gospel, that whole thing, all the parts of the gospel. And please, if you only take one thing from today's message, let it be the next statement that I'm going to make because too many Christians are getting their response wrong on this issue and they think they're really doing something good. Hear me clearly. Judge not is not the gospel. Judge not is not the gospel. And I must say that I've been concerned that the bulk of Christian response that I've seen to the Supreme Court's decision has essentially amounted to joining with the rest of the culture in collectively shouting at anyone who dares suggest that this wasn't a good thing, judge not. Listen, there is an appropriate application for the admonition against judging, but it is not the application that the culture is screaming about. And you, Christian, when you join the culture's judge-not screech, are aligning yourself with people whose theological understanding is so shallow that they actually think pointing out that you eat shellfish is a compelling case for why homosexuality is okay with God. Now, time does not permit me to go into a whole explanation of this judge-not sentiment, but I've preached on it previously. And if you'd like to familiarize yourself with it, uh, it was a message from October 17th, 2010, simply titled, Judge Not, with a question mark, and you can request a copy of that CD, and we will be happy to provide it uh, to you. The culture basically claims that the Bible excludes all moral judgment about another person's sin if you have ever sinned yourself. And that is a complete and utter distortion of what the Bible says. And yet, when you, Christian, join the Judge Not Chorus, you are contributing to an imprecise and false understanding of what the Bible says, and you ought to stop doing it. Instead, share the gospel. And here's something that Christians need to be very concerned about, that your speech doesn't leave the impression that you are giving approval to sin. And since everyone screaming judge not is using it as a cover to do whatever they want, when you join the judge not course, you just might unintentionally be leaving someone with the impression that you approve of their sin. And that is a serious matter. Now, I recognize it's usually a well-intentioned mistake, but it's a well-intentioned mistake that can have dire consequences. In both Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 5, Paul deals with the approval of sin in very strong terms. It's not just those who are engaged in sin that he's concerned about. It is those who give approval to sin that he is concerned about. Of course, the context of both is intentional approval, but let's be careful that we don't unintentionally affirm things that we're not meaning to affirm. 
If you're going to wade into the debate with judge not, it is going to require much more precision than what most people give it. As a general statement, it is actually very unhelpful because it is so commonly accepted to be a means of simply saying everyone is fine like they are as long as they aren't hurting anyone, so don't make any moral determinations about anyone or anything. And because that's what it means, friends, it simply does not hold up biblically. And here's what can end up happening if you're not careful with your language. You end up getting used by the forces of evil. You play the role of useful idiot. I debated whether to use that phrase or not. But I did. Because you spoke their language with imprecision, they claim you as yet another ally in their quest to silence any warnings about sin. One of the most challenging things for Christians who want to respectfully resist the wholesale acceptance of homosexuality and same-sex marriage in our culture is the other Christians who are rushing into the fray trying to prove how non-judgmental they are. And in some cases intentionally, but in many cases unintentionally, not really representing the Bible and God correctly. Can I be honest with you? If the people screaming judge not really loudly ever say to you, because of your affirmation of their judge not message, you're a real Christian. You're how Christians are really supposed to be. There's a very good chance that you failed to share the gospel. And instead, you just parroted something that has an appropriate application, but not the one that you gave it. Judge not is not the gospel. And so I am appealing for Christians to stop acting as though it is. And the final thing I want to suggest we do is to work to uphold religious freedom. I I can't say all that I would like to say about this today simply because of time, but religious freedom is one of our fundamental rights here in the United States of America. The earliest colonists came to this land in part out of desire for religious freedom. It is enshrined in our constitution and it is worth working to uphold. You are fooling yourself if you think it isn't and won't continue to be under attack. This decision has set gay rights and religious freedom on a collision course as I believe all of the dissenting justices noted in their dissents. Frank Bruni, a New York Times columnist, positively quoted a businessman whose name escapes me right now who said this, churches must be made to take homosexuality off the sin list. Churches must be made to take homosexuality off the sin list. One of the most important things you can do to uphold religious freedom is to refuse to be silent to respectfully state what you believe. Now let me try to be clear here. I don't believe all of us have a responsibility to leave this building today and begin publicly and loudly proclaiming our viewpoints. But if the conversation is brought to you 
you need to be willing to speak what you truly believe, emphasizing the importance of religious freedom. Around the water cooler at the PTO meeting and your family, even on Facebook, when people begin to infringe on your right to live according to your religious convictions, I encourage you not to be silent. You see, most of you are really nice and reasonable people. Most of you are. Wow, you guys, I was trying to introduce a little levity to the, to the discussion here. Okay, I think all of you are nice and reasonable people. And other people need to see that there are nice and reasonable, reasonable people who have genuine beliefs that are not based in hate, but are based in true, honest, religious convictions. Now, I don't think any of you have a responsibility to push back in all of these ways, but I think you ought to consider doing so in a respectful, kind way. But here is something that that I feel I must tell you. I believe that you have an absolute responsibility uh, to. Even if you choose to try to completely avoid the fray, and that's okay. I don't think you have to wade into the battle. But, but, but if you choose, I'm going to try to just stay out of this. If you are directly asked what you believe, if it's brought to you, I believe you must speak the truth. Even if it's your employer asking, and even if your job is on the line. I don't think you have to initiate but I think you do have to tell the truth if you're asked. Many Christians today have convinced themselves that retreating from the public square is what's needed, that we should stay out of these controversial issues even as we are being increasingly marginalized. They know that the church often does better when it's persecuted, and that's certainly a fair, uh, a fair point. But I've noticed that these same Christians never seem uncomfortable being involved in the political process when it comes to human trafficking, or fighting payday lending businesses, or advocating for immigration reform, all of which are controversial to somebody. Why do we only pull back when the issues don't have popular support? We shouldn't. Right is right, and truth is truth, whether it's popular or unpopular truth. And in a representative republic, which at least theoretically invites the participation of all its citizens, it is okay for Christians to push back when religious freedom is being attacked. Because here's the truth, religious freedom is good for the entire nation, not just Christians. It's good for Christians and non-Christians alike. So since we did not fight very well over the past several years and now have gay marriage, maybe we can wake up and decide to push back before we lose religious freedom too. But Brian, won't that hurt our witness to get involved in fighting for our rights I personally, you can disagree with me if you, if you want. It's a free country for now. I do not believe that the cause of evangelism ever requires the denial of truth. I don't believe it ever requires that we hide truth in the back room like something to be ashamed of. I don't believe the cause of evangelism ever requires us to accommodate injustice and sin And I don't believe the cause of evangelism uh, requires the willful surrender of fundamental rights. If someone needs you to give them all of that, 
before they'll listen to you share the gospel, I would suggest that they're not ready to hear and receive the gospel, which itself is rooted in absolute truth that requires a person to face the fact that they are wrong. I told you several weeks ago, we were going to need to be people of courage. And that time is upon us. And I pray that we will be people of courage. Here's the final thing that I want to say to you today. I want to encourage all of us, as difficult as this is, to commit ourselves that we will not live for the approval of men. But instead, we will live for the approval of God. Matthew 10, 28. Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. How do we respond to the Supreme Court decision We commit ourselves to living for the approval of God, no matter the cost. Why don't you stand?